5 that's going to be held at the church building a week from this Saturday. An all-out battle between men who are cooking that they think that they have the ability to really cook well. They're going to face each other in a battle for victory. Now already, uh, John McKnight is saying, y'all can go ahead and just bring McDonald's burgers if you want to because he's got it won. That's the words I'm hearing from him. And uh, others, I hope, are going to take issue with him. You can win it for all I care because I can't cook at all, so it doesn't do me any good. But uh, I'm just telling you, a week from this Saturday, here at the church building, these men are going to have it out, and we become beneficiaries. You all fight, we just eat. So the rest of us just eat their creations, um, supposing they're edible, I guess. And and so just be here for that. That's part of uh, Lads to Leaders stuff that's happening as April comes tomorrow. Uh, that means Lads to Leaders Month, and as they get geared up, we have ladies' teas and some different things that are going to go on, but, but I'm supposed to hit that really hard, so the 13th, I'll be here for that. I'm going to apologize for, for, to Tom Nix for a couple things. He's an ophthalmologist, not an optometrist, okay? So uh, your insurance will cover your time here today, okay? It will, because they can turn down an optometrist, but they'll never turn down an ophthalmologist, okay? So... That's a, but another thing, too, is uh, I told him the text was going to be Jesus and, and the confession of Peter, and it was going to be until about Friday. Uh, and then I came up with this really brilliant idea of how to communicate that better, but, but I didn't have time to get the resources here for it. So I'm, I'm backing up and doing something similar, but it's not with that text. And so he, he chose great songs with that text, what will still fit with a lesson this morning, but it was my bad. It wasn't him. It was me making a change because I just didn't think fast enough. Sometimes brilliant ideas only happen later. Usually it's when about a year after the sermon's preached that I come up with a good idea for it. But in this case, I'm going to put it off because it's worth it. Uh, So next week we'll be talking about the keys to the kingdom. Let's sing together. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Make your way to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, if you would, please. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Carson made a great decision the other night, don't you think? It's a great decision we celebrate, but he missed out on something. Uh, we, we decided, you know, after Matthew Morion came to visit us, and he had that class time about what do you do to celebrate baptisms, it got Wesley going, and the elders got together, and they started thinking, what are we going to do? And so they, they started, let's communicate this more and more. So when somebody's baptized here, if it's in service or right after, as it often is, what we're going to do is we're going to have everybody assemble here for when the person comes out going to come up to the front, kind of surround them as best we can with the numbers we have. And when they are, when we're going to sing until, of course, the baptism happens. And then when they come out, we're going to kind of gather around them and have a special prayer. We're also going to sing a song. And the one he really likes, Wesley did, I kind of put a stamp of approval on this too, is I have decided to follow Jesus. Just an, an easy line that we don't need slides for. And it really does communicate what he's just done. You've made a great decision. And we together as a church sing with and pray over that person. 
and celebrate the fact that they've made this life-changing decision. It's a great idea, and I'm hoping that we did this once with Cannon not long ago, and I think we may just, for the fun of it, bring Carson up here later, because, you know, usually you get baptized outside because you don't want all the attention. So I'm thinking, why not give him the attention anyway, you know? Uh, but, I mean, if, you, if he made his mama drive three and a half hours and 11.30 at night, get baptized by his dad, that's a beautiful story. Just tell that in your families for a long time. But that decision, when you decide to make that decision, when, you, you, when that decision is made by you, it is a huge one. It changes everything. It's a line of demarcation between before and after. And today I want to talk about that decision as made by a person 2,600 years ago. And we tend to, tend to think that that's so ancient history, there's no value for us, but there is. The life of Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, as he so well said a moment ago. He inherits a kingdom from 55 years of his grandfather's rule. His grandfather inherited it from his great-grandfather, who was Hezekiah, who was really a good king and put things in good shape. But then when Asa took it over, he did all sorts of awful, trashy things. Fifty-five years of junk. He brings in the worship of the stars and the Asherah and the Baal, and he sets up high places and even offers his own son in the fire as a sacrifice to Molech. So this guy was terrible, and he introduces all this bad stuff, and he has 55 years to do it. Asa was terrible. And then his own son becomes king, who's Josiah's father. And he's terrible too. He's so bad, after two years, his own servants rise up and kill him because they can't stand to even serve the guy. It's bad. So we've had 57 years of really bad junk, and to the throne comes an eight-year-old. How, is anybody in here eight? Do we have an eight-year-old somewhere? Would somebody be a model of eight-year-old? Who, who? Would you stand up where you are? What, what's your name? Kason? Okay, eight years old. Would you become president tomorrow if we would let you? No, you're a smart boy. <laughs> the maturity level of the Oval Office would go up, wouldn't it? Anyway, so anyway, eight years old, and this guy takes over the throne. And what a weird thing to think an eight year Now, Asa was 12, so I mean, that's not a whole lot better. But you've got this eight-year-old taking the throne, and you're thinking, oh, no, this is going to get really bad because all he's known is his grandfather's rule and his dad's rule. All he's going to do is just copycat them. Oh, but this is the interesting thing. He makes a decision. And I want you to see it in chapter 34 of Second Chronicles. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. I'm going to pause right there. He did not turn to the right hand or the left. I'm going to tell you the signs of the decision he made. First of all, we're going to go backwards here. First of all, he chose the path he's going to take. And he didn't swerve to the right or the left. He made a choice. I'm going to stay right here on the path of God, and I'm not going to let anything distract me. And I'm not going to let anything get me off kilter, and I'm not going to go off-roading. I'm going to stay on God's path, not to the right nor to the left. I'm not going to go conservative, and I'm not going to go compressive. I'm just going to stay right here on this path. The jury is not out. I'm not trying to decide. I've already decided. When we sing, when somebody's baptized, we don't sing, I am deciding to follow. No, 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 no. 
It's past tense. I've decided. The jury's not out. I'm not trying to evaluate my options. No, once you're baptized, you decided. It's over. The time for thinking and evaluating is over. I've decided. I'm nailing my foot to the floor. So when Shelby and Kyle over here are married, now they're in the engagement period. The engagement period is for planning the wedding and doing some serious research to make sure this guy is right for me. When you go to the wedding and you say, I do, the time for maybe, what if, should I, is over. You're deciding. That's what not to the right, to the left. I'm going to walk in this one. Here's the other thing it says about it. Notice this other description. Uh, he chose the way of David, his father. Now, what's interesting is every king, when they took the throne, he modeled his reign after somebody he knew. He chose mentors, he chose advisors, and he chose some inspiration. He, he kind of like American Idol. It's who's your idol? Now, every king that takes the throne chooses to model it after somebody. Notice some of these kings on here. Manasseh, this was, this was no, I said Asa, didn't I? I meant Manasseh. So Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations. Who did he want to be like? All the nations around him. I've been saying Asa the whole time. It's Manasseh, not Asa. Asa was a good guy. So here's according to the abominations. So when he took the throne, he said, I want to be like everybody else. And there are people who live their lives this way. I want to be like everybody else. And when you do, is that good or bad? Oh, come on, y'all. Is it good or bad? It's always bad. It's just always bad. So Manasseh chose a wrong mentor. Next one. Ammon. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. Listen, for some of us, being like your dad would be great, but for some of you, if you're just like your dad, it's not good. And in his case, he wanted to be just like his dad, and his dad was rotten. Next one. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. Now, thumbs up or thumbs down, which was Ahab? Come on, y'all. He was not, he was down here. I mean, terrible. And this, this guy, you know what? I want to be just like Ahab. Oh, and it was terrible. Is there one more? I think there is. Ahaziah, 22 years old. One, next slide. No. Okay, so there was another, there are other ones who chose the nations of Israel. The northern tribes, all of them are. The idea is you're picking somebody to be like, and when it's time for Josiah, as eight-year-old, to decide what kind of reign he's going to have, he looks through history, and he, an eight-year-old who's very serious about this does his research and says, I want to be just like David. Is that good or bad? That's very good. He's a man after God's own heart. He's done his homework. I'm not going to be like my grandpa, the only one I've ever known, really, as far as a king. I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like either. I'm going to choose to go back to the original good resource, and I'm going to be like David. I'm going to have to do my homework, but I want to be a man after God's own heart. Do you men, do you men aspire to be men after God's own heart like David? Is that something you want? Surely it is. You've got to choose a right mentor, and he did. There's one other thing I want you to see in this text that tells you he made the right decision. He chose, and he wouldn't budge. His mentor was David, and it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He decided that he was going to live his life and his main audience to satisfy 
the audience he's most concerned about, the one whose opinion means the most, the one he wanted to earn the applause of was not going to be anyone other than God himself. I'm going to dress to please God. I'm going to talk to please God. I'm going to act to please God. I've chosen my audience. Too many people are choosing the wrong audience to live in front of. They're choosing the audience of their peers. They're choosing the audience of professors around them. They're choosing all sorts of people to please and to satisfy. And I'm living my life and I'm dressing to get the applause of the boys or the applause of the girls or whatever. His only audience that he cared about. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to live in the sight of the Lord. It does matter who you know you're living in front of. And he chose God. Okay, so he made these choices. He chose the right mentor, he chose the right audience to live out in front of, and he, cho- and he chose the right path, and he wasn't going to budge. When you make the right decision, you can start then acting the right way. Your actions that you take flow from the decision you make. Did you get that rhyme? That was brilliant, so I'm going to say it again. The actions you take will flow from the decisions you make. So he made this decision, and there's three verbs that flow. I want you to see these verbs because the text is very clear. The way it's organized, you can't miss it. So join me again, verse 1 on the screen. Well, I did have... Could you back up to the verse screen? I got you wrong on that one. Okay. Josiah was eight years old. I want somebody who's good at math. Is anybody somebody good at math? Because, and you've and you got you to keep paying attention because I'm going to put you on the spot a lot. Come on, somebody's good at math. We have a mathematician in here. It's not even that hard. It's just basic addition. Okay, you had a birthday yesterday, right? Okay, so I'm going to count on you, all right? Sally's going to do this. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. Now, here's where he starts the verbs, right? In the eighth year of his reign, he started at eight, and this is the eighth year, which means he is how old? 16. She just went, (laughs) okay, that's uh, 16 years old. He makes a decision, and that decision is what? Eighth year of his reign, while he was still a boy, he began to... Come on, it's underlined. Seek. You don't even have to guess what a verb is, all right? It's underlined. He began to seek. I decided, I'm going to go seeking God. Sixteen years old. How young do you... How old do you have to be before you can really start walking with God? How, How old do you have to be before you can start getting a serious desire to serve God? How old do you have to be? He's eight, and he's making these decisions, y'all. Now, it's a very serious time, and he had to grow up faster than our people do today. But listen, you don't have to wait till you're in college before you decide, you know what, I'm going to serve God in a serious way. You don't have to wait till you're in high school in the youth group in the sixth grade. No, you can start making some decisions when you're really young to say, I'm going to be serious about serving God, and that's what this eight-year-old guy did. So Josiah, at eight years old, on the eighth year, began to seek God. How do you seek God? God. We are told the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? And all these things shall be added to you. What's it mean to seek? I think a hide and seek. You know, there's somebody hiding, and i got to go find them, and I don't waste my time with anything other than the person I'm looking for. Or maybe you're looking for your car keys. Anybody have problems with that? It's amazing how they've got devices now to help you keep not having to do this. 
But you go looking for them, and you, you don't look for anything else. You just look for your keys. But I, I want to do the most obvious thing. I want you to see. How many are good at seek and find? How many say you're good at it? You got these words. You got to find words in this one. Next screen. Okay, God is in this somewhere. God is in this list of words, these letters, right? Don't, don't say, and you can't, you can't circle it anyway, except in your mind. But if you're like me... <laughs> If you're like me, you could start with the far right, the very bottom at Y, and here's how I do this. I'm pretty good at doing this. I look, I'm looking for God, so I'm looking for G, and Y is not G, so I'm not wasting my time looking there anymore. No, Y is an interesting letter. You know how it goes like this and this, and, but I don't care. It's not a G, so I just keep looking. Go all the way up. There's nothing in that row, all the way down, nothing in that row, go all the way up, and, until you find a G, and then you stop, and you go, okay, I'm going to spend some time here, and I'm going to look around the G and see if there's an O, and if there's not an O, just keep going because it's not God, right? And it keeps going until you finally find it. Don't waste time with anything that's not God. That's the idea. Don't waste time with anything else. Anybody found it already? Okay, so most people have found it. Okay, but here's the thing that happens. While you're looking for it, you'll run across other things. And you'll get distracted, and you'll stop looking for God, and you'll find those other things and enjoy them. Did anybody find anything else? Fame. Popularity. Popularity is too big, so I put fame. You get popular, and say, I like this. I'm not going to look for God anymore. Listen, people do this. On your way to looking for God, you find the guy, the boyfriend. You see that on the... You find the boyfriend, and you're so enamored with boyfriend, you're no longer looking for God. And guess what? You make the boyfriend God. That's what happens to people. You'll see money in here somewhere. You'll see job in here somewhere. You'll see a truck for all you guys. There's a truck in here, right? You're going to... But listen, when you go looking for God, and the thing is, but as you're looking, you, just, you discover other things, and you get enamored, and you stop looking for God, and now all of a sudden you put something else in its place, and you get messed up. That's not seeking for God. What Josiah decided to do, I'm going to find him first. Before I do anything else as a king, I'm going to go and seek him out, and I'm going to find him and make him number one in my life. Now, here's the beautiful thing about this. Once you find God, which most of you have, it's the G in the top row going diagonal one direction or another. I'm confused right now, but it's G-O-D up there. Once you circle God and you got him set, there's another screen that opens up. All those things that were distractions before can become things you can enjoy. Now you can find the boyfriend and the girlfriend or the girlfriend, the boyfriend or the girlfriend. You can find the truck. You can find the job. You can find those possessions. You can find those toys. You can enjoy them, but only if you find God first. So ladies, yes, here's the deal. You make sure God's number one first, then look for the guy. And if he's not number one with the guy, keep looking. Once you find that and get that set and it's circled and set for your life, you can, the other things will come to you. That's what Jesus says. And that's what Josiah shows. The first thing, from age 16, he says, I'm seeking only God. And there were some distracting things in the land. He hasn't done anything to the junk yet. It's all there. He sees all that bad stuff that's so, so sensual and so attractive and so... He, but he doesn't look. He just looks only for God. Then... Something else happens. First of all, seek God. And then the second verb. In the eighth year of his reign, 
Okay, now I'm going to expect everybody to answer because I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not, she's just going to look at me and go, huh? So, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, twelfth year would make him, he's 20, he began to, what's the word? Purge. We're going to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved in the metal images. I'm going to now that I've found God and I've circled him and got set, now I'm going to clean up the junk that got people distracted in the first place. Now I'm going to clear out all the competitors. Now this is amazing. We don't get a real detail in 2 Chronicles, but 2 Kings does give us a, an idea. And here's the things he purged. You ready? To purge is to get rid of and eliminate. First of all, he purged places. It says he defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high places. High places was any hill which made you closer to God. And they would build a little tower thing, and they would start worshiping false gods. And... There's towers everywhere. There's high hills everywhere. And he went up on every one of them and crushed it. Because the idea is if you don't have a place, you can't have the worship. Next, keep going. He defiled Topheth that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. His grandfather had done this. I can't imagine ever doing that, but they were so devoted to their false god that they would burn their own sons in Topheth. And guess what he did? He destroyed that spot. You can't go burn your son when there's no spot to burn him in. The king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, the south of Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built. These high places where people went, places people could go and engage in false worship, he got rid of them. What are the places you need to stop going to or you need to destroy from your life so that you no longer have access to them? I know you're not bowing down on high places. But a person who decides Christ is Lord, you make a decision to seek God first, there are places you can go where nobody else knows. You can still kind of reserve for yourself some nice pet sins to engage in when nobody's looking. Where are those places? Are you willing, are you so decided on God that you're willing to destroy them? They might be virtual. They might be on a phone somewhere, hidden behind an app that kind of fakes people out. They might be some place where you know when you go there, you just for some reason weaken spiritually and resolve, and you know that when you get there, it's going to make you a, a less spiritual person. And the easiest thing you can do is just quit going! He said, purge those places. Second thing you begin to do is purge practices. 2 Kings 23 mentions a few of these and the weird location of these. Listen to this. The king commanded the priest to bring out of the temple of the Lord. These were things in God's temple. They were sitting on the Lord's supper table. The vessels made for Baals, for Asherah, and all the hosts of heaven, the stars of the sky, and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made. He pulled them down and broke them in pieces, put them in dust, and he went and he buried them in a faraway place. The idea is they were taking these vessels, and they were in the house of God, and they were using them as special offerings to these false gods. And it was right there in the church building. How in the world could they let this go on? You'll see in a minute how they did this. But what he did is he got rid of everything, all the paraphernalia of their false worship, so that it made them unable to practice it. 
Today, what do you need to get rid of? What are the practices in your life that if you seek God, you've got to purge these practices out of your life? Maybe some of them are near and dear to you. Maybe you've practiced them to medicate yourself just a little bit from, from emotional stress in your life. But whatever it is, these practices need to be gotten rid of. It might be in a pill form. It might be in a liquid form. It might, again, be on your cell phone. Practices need to be purged out. If you don't make it available to yourself, you can't practice it. There's one other thing you need to purge. It's certain people. 2 Kings 23 talks about how he got rid of the, the leaders, the false prophets. Notice that and he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places in the cities of Judah around Jerusalem. The kings of Judah had actually ordained these people to lead in the false worship. You ordain, give them special permission to lead in false worship, and they were leading. You have a whole group of people over here, and their job is to lead your people astray from God? What? So he gets rid of them, and it's so serious. Notice this next one. He actually cuts down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. Can you tell me where in Leviticus we have provision for our male cult prostitutes in Israelite worship? There's no such thing. But they were housed right there at the house of God. Male prostitutes. And then he says this next verse says, he even killed, he sacrificed the priests of the high places. Some of them he had to totally obliterate. We're talking about taking these people and killing them because they were leading people astray. Okay, we don't have false prophet priests in our houses. But are there people in your life that for whatever reason you just can't seem to be around them and still maintain your Christian faith? Is it seeking God going to cause you to have to get rid of these people? We know from Scripture that's one of those things that happen. Evil companions corrupt good morals, we say all the time. And the prophets of Baal went against Elijah, and after Elijah won, the first thing he did is he takes them all and he slaughters them in the valley below, right? That's what you do with competitors who have the power to lead you astray if you're not really attentive and be careful. So Michael Jordan, one time, who's on a Nike contract for life, he has some friends that he can put on that contract. I wish I was one of them, but all these friends receive all the Nike stuff they want. They just say an order, and that comes to their house. And he, stopped, he was going to eat with one of his friends who was on this contract with him. And he comes in his house and he says, hey, it's a little cooler than I thought. I need to borrow a jacket. And he says, yeah, it's just down the hall in the closet. So he goes down the hall in the closet and he opens it up. And he takes a long time to come back to the door. And the guy says, hey, man, we got reservations. And he comes. He sees Michael Jordan coming with his arms together like this full of Puma stuff. The friend had gotten a bunch of Puma stuff in his closet. And Michael Jordan comes back, and he drops them all there. He goes back in the kitchen, brings back a butcher knife and special scissors, and he cuts them all up right in front of this friend. And he says to the friend, man, you're on a contract with me. It's a great thing for you, but listen, you cannot ride the fence. Either you just have Nike stuff in your house, or you don't have anything. You can't ride the fence like this and start playing with all these other things. And Jordan's right. If you're going to commit to it, commit to it. Don't do the other stuff. What happens when you make a decision and you say, I have decided to follow Jesus? It means I'm going to seek God. 
It means I'm going to purge my life of the things that don't belong. And then it means one other thing. I want you to notice the next one. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, which make him... Oh, you guys have forgotten. 26 years old. He's 26 years old. He cleansed the land in the house. He sent... I put three dudes because I don't know their names. To repair the house of the Lord his God. He sent these three guys in to clean up the house of God where they worship, right? And the weird thing is you're thinking clean up, you're thinking change furnace filters, get some Windex and some stuff, you know, to clean, and, and wax and all this stuff. But no, 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 he's got to get stonemasons, he's got to get carpenters, he's got people with timber. He's going to have to get all these people because the thing is falling in. The temple is in terrible shape. He has to basically rebuild and remodel, which means they haven't been in there in a long, long time. And the interesting thing about this is, as they start cleaning this thing out, they discover something. This is a famous scene in Scripture. They discover the book of the law of God. The Bible's been hidden. You know, it was on a coffee table for a while where people could peruse it. And then they put it on the bookshelf and then other things got put in front of it. And, it. and the book of the law of the Lord suddenly is lost and nobody knows where it is. So people haven't been reading Scripture in a long time. You know what happens? Even right now, those of us, maybe you've been ingrained in Scripture all your life and you've been to church all your life. If right now, today, you make a decision, I'm never going to look at it and we're not going to teach Bible classes out of it. We're not going to hear the same old sermons out of that Bible for the, for, for starting right now. How long would it take for us to forget? Anybody have any idea? It wouldn't take long. We act like we're so used to it. I've heard that sermon before, and I've been in, we've studied Acts, here we are again studying. But listen, if we don't keep doing it, we will forget it very quickly. And in fact, here's the thing, you will be convinced you as, even us Christians can be convinced that we live a pretty good life, a good moral life that's pleasing to God if we just don't read the Bible too close. We just kind of keep it closed. Oh, I'm pretty good. I know the general idea and the main things that God wants. But then you don't open it up and let it get picky. You don't let it become, what does he call it? A sword dividing the thoughts and intents of the heart. You don't let it judge you and slice and dice you. And listen, the Scripture does that. It's living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. But if it's never given permission to reign through your life and do the things it needs to do, you will convince yourself you're pretty good. And in fact, I'm going to tell you, you know how churches can get themselves to accept a lot of things in worship that don't belong? They just don't look at it anymore. Just kind of do what you want. And that's what had happened. And they found the law of God, and they began to read it. They found this book of the law of God, and they started reading it to Josiah, and he immediately tears up. He gets sackcloth and ashes, and he starts tearing his clothes, and he realizes what I'm reading is nothing like what I'm seeing or giving God. I don't see it. There's a discrepancy between what God wants and what I'm giving, and it's destroying him. And I want you to listen to what he does to repair when it says repair, they mean it. Second Chronicles 34. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And he went in pursuit. What must I do? And he talks to the prophet that's available. And I want you to skip down to verse 29. Or 31. And the king stood in his place and renewed the covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul and perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. He stands before the people and says, guys, we're getting this right. First of all, we're going to repent. We're going to acknowledge that our lives don't line up with God's will. 
And secondly, we're going we're gonna to renew this contract. We're going to renew this covenant. We're going to get back on board. And the beautiful thing about the God we serve, y'all, is this. The moment you decide to renew, you're fully forgiven and absolutely on track. God's just waiting right there. And as soon as you repent, you are right with God again, and you can renew that covenant once more. Repair. We live in a culture that doesn't repair anything anymore. The moment something starts not working, we just chunk it and get a new thing. And we, we sometimes think, well, God, we can't please God because our lives are so messed up. I might as well forget it and give up. No, that's not the God we serve. He's into repair. He's into fixing things and redeeming things. A few years ago, my son is absolutely a millennial which means I don't understand him much at all. How many are millennials in here? I think born like 1980, uh, or 1998 or 99 after. Raise your hand. Now, there's a new generation after that. But millennials are a little different than, than the people before them. And one of the things with Noah is when he turned 16, he had no interest in driving. Anybody like that? Uh, millennials. I do not get... How many remember you turned 16? I can't wait for the independence. Let me get out of here. Yes, that's the people I am with. You and I are the same. We are a family, right? But the next generation came along and said, I know what you're doing. I get enough out of social media, and I know what you're doing. You're going to make me run your errands and run my little sister everywhere, and so I don't even want to do it. Well, we got to thinking, no, well, how are we going to get him and spur him on? Well, here's how you do it. You get him a set of wheels, right? Now, we didn't do this because, you know, we felt like we owed him. We felt like we needed to motivate him to do something with this license thing. And so we started looking around for a car, and he didn't want any of them. He didn't want, there was no car. To, I don't, I'm not interested in cars. What is wrong with this boy? We thought of every, old Mustangs. We looked at a few old Mustangs. Thought it'd be cool. Nope. We, uh, knew, we went through car, just find one. We're not going to get you a new one, but, I mean, just look. See one, right? Nothing. Then he saw one at Six Flags, and it looked like this. A juke ugliest car I think I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> Melissa and I were both like, you have got to be kidding. I think it's because he'd never seen one like it. And he looked at that and said, that, I think that would be nice. I said, you've got to be joking me. So I started looking for that thing. It looks like this generation's bug, sort of. And so I started looking for one of those and I looked everywhere and they were just like very few because nobody had them right? You can't buy a used car when it's just the newest thing in the world, right? Well, a guy had one in Little Rock that had a bone-up engine for the second time. And he'd had it on Craigslist for months. Nobody was budging. They wouldn't touch that thing. The engine blew up twice. He wasn't going to replace it again. It's sitting in a new car lot just, just sitting there. And I'm thinking, well, that would be, I could get that for cheap, right? Problem is it couldn't run, which is, no one would be thrilled with that. He wouldn't care anyway. So I started looking for an engine, and a guy had an engine that they were moving off the truck, and it fell off, and it popped the little plastic thing off on top so they can't do anything with it, sold it for cheap, and so I thought, I had it shipped up, and I thought, just put this new one in the car, and it will run. We had a mechanic that we loved dearly, and he took his time, and he did that. And so for cheap, we have this juke with a brand new engine sitting in it. 
And we go up there, and he starts, it purrs like a kitten, been running perfect ever since. And there, nobody would touch it. You know, this thing is cursed or something, right? Nobody wants to touch this. It won't run. It's all messed up. And so it just sits there forever, and the weather is and all that stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking, why not repair it? Why not just fix it? And God is like that with us. He does not chunk us when we go wrong. He doesn't chunk us when we make a mistake. And when we just, we just flub up our lives a little bit and we go a little bit to the right or to the left, we go off-roading a little bit. And yes, we may bring shame on ourselves or even on Him, but He will always take you back. Now, here's the thing. We don't have the same kind of temple they did. He repaired the temple of God. What is the temple of God today? Us! God resides in each one of you, and then when we get together, He resides in us as a community. And so He's saying to us, when you get things in your, in your life, in your temple, that are a little amiss, you put some junk in there that doesn't belong, do not just give up and do not just say you, you're, you're, you're of no use to God. God can repair it. You come to Him and you repent. You come to Him and renew it, the covenant, and you're as good as new. If you've decided to follow Jesus, what you know is this. You need to seek Him with all your heart. You need to purge the things out of your life that don't belong. And then you need to constantly do repair work because you're going to be doing repair work the rest of your life. And God loves it because you're drawing closer every time. If you've never responded to God, you need to make a decision. You need to decide for Him. You need to make a decision and stand on it and go with it the rest of your life. And what you choose to do and the actions that flow out of that decision will be these things. You will be seeking. You'll be purging and repairing for the rest of your life. If for whatever reason you, you, saw, you made the decision to follow God, but you got distracted with something. You've gone off-road and you've gone to the right or to the left. And you need to come back to center. You need to come back to God and renew that covenant. This morning, it's available to you. We stand ready to receive you as a group of people who know exactly where you've been because we are in constant renewal too. We'll be glad to help you with that. But if you've never made the decision in the first place, it's a great day to make a decision to serve God, to do what Carson did and Cannon did recently. And what a lot of us have done, and we've never regretted it. Whatever is your response this morning, make some kind of decision now as we stand and as we sing.